What is Maine? Who is Maine? What are the stories of those who have lived here from the beginning, that migrated here, and that continue to inhabit this unique place? Close observers, who through words and images, strive to capture the details in fiction, history, art, and song. These are conversations from the pointed firs, invoking the spirit of place with artists and authors from Maine. Welcome to Conversations from the Pointed Firs. I'm your host, Peter Neal. My guest today is John Bunker, homesteader, farmer, orchardist, author, apple historian, co-founder of Fedco Seeds, and founder of Mafka's Maine Heritage Orchard, a 10-acre preservation and educational orchard located in Unity, Maine, home to over 360 varieties of apples and pears, traditionally grown in Maine, with more being added each year. The collection includes varieties from all 16 counties in Maine, dating back as far as 1630. This year is the 150th anniversary of the Maine Pomological Society, founded in 1873. John, welcome to Conversations from the Pointed Furs. Thank you. We're here at your farm in Palermo, Maine. Light rain outside, lush and verdant. It's a privilege to be here uh, and to sort of talk about the role of the apple as icon for the spirit of Maine. But first, let's talk a little bit about you. Where did you come from? How, do you, how did you come from Maine? What's your, what's your history? Well, I grew up uh, partly in Massachusetts and partly in California. And uh, I grew up at a time where, and, a lo- and locations where I could be outdoors a lot. So I spent a lot of my childhood uh, roaming around the neighborhoods, uh, playing in streams and muddy puddles, and, uh, and just being able to uh, be outdoors. And when I was... Uh, 11, friends invited me to Maine. I came up for a few days and uh, immediately decided that as soon as I could, I would move to Maine and spend the rest of my life here. So the rest of my childhood was uh, built around figuring out how to get to Maine every summer. And I was able to do that pretty successfully one way or another. Eventually went to college in Maine and then moved to the land on which I live the day after I graduated. So I've now been here uh, I could put it in another room. Should I do that? Yeah. Trying to move the clock. An (laughs) unexpected sound, I'm sorry. We're gonna put it in the refrigerator. There also may be a crowing rooster or two, but we'll we'll hope for the best. Okay. So so tell me about Fedco. How did that happen? Well, I immediately got involved in Mafka um, as Mafka got going back in the early seventies, and um, and and became an admirer of it and loved what they were doing. I was not involved in the initial, you know, uh, sort of organization of Mafka, but I was a big fan and went to the first fair and, uh, and watched it closely. 
Um, and eventually, this would have been in the early 1980s, um, I noticed that uh, most of what Mafka was doing was about uh, vegetable gardening. And meanwhile, uh, my focus, although I was very focused on growing vegetables for our use, not for sale, um, I became interested in the old apple trees, first of my neighborhood in Palermo, and then eventually of the county, Waldo County, and then eventually of all over the state. And I noticed that uh, these trees from which I was collecting apples um, freely, because I would stop and pound on, knock on somebody's door and say, you know, what, could I have the apples in your yard? Do you want them? And people were so generous and just said, sure, take all you want. And uh, then they would come out, they would come out uh, while I was uh, collecting apples in their yard and they'd say, oh yeah, this is a Baldwin. You know, we use that for pies. It keeps all winter. This is a Northern Spy. This is a Wolf River. So I started to learn, wow, there were these actual varieties of apples. And I, you know, I thought there were red apples and green apples. I didn't really know any difference. And, and then I started to think, well, wait a minute. These apples from which I'm picking are, I mean, I didn't know how old because I didn't really know anything about the history. But I could certainly tell they were really, really old. And the people who are living there now, in many cases, they didn't even know the names anymore. Right. And they didn't know who had planted them. But I started to think about these trees as a gift to me. You know, I mean, I didn't own them, but, but you know, then I learned about grafting. And they had been grafted and planted and cared for and pruned and picked and fertilized and whatever by people who never knew me, never knew that I would even be, were not related to me, and yet they had done this incredible thing for me. And so I started to think, well, wait a minute. If they did this for me and for you know my generation, don't I have some kind of obligation to do that for the future? And so that got me thinking, well, one, maybe I should plant some trees too to, to just try this thing. But then I also thought, gosh, Mofka is really focused on vegetables. That's great. It's really good that people are growing their own gardens. But we should also be uh, encouraging people to plant trees, not just apple trees, but we should be doing for some future generation what these you know old timers or whatever you want to call them did for us and so i thought okay so i should start a nursery and i should and i should uh, make these trees available to us to our generation we need to be planting trees so my friend said to me you should do you know like bunkers nursery or something you know and and uh and then it would be yours and you could control it and do whatever you want. Meanwhile, I had started working for Fedco Seeds, which was about two or three years old at that point. I was one of the original people, though not the first year. I really liked the model that Fedco Seeds was starting to develop, which is a true co-op. And that just really made sense to me. 
And so I went and uh, had a conversation with them and said, what if we started a tree version of this? And we'd call it Fedco Trees. And they were very encouraging. And we spent about a year uh, coming up with a budget and a kind of business plan or whatever. And then in uh, the, the summer of 1983, we created the first catalog of Fedco Trees, which was just a few sheets of paper stapled in the corner. And then it was the spring of 84. We had our first tree sale, what we called the tree sale at that point. Uh, I don't even think it was mail order. I think the first year you had to come pick it up, uh, pick up your order. But then very quickly it became mail order as well. And uh, that was really because, well, for one, I, I felt like, well, maybe this could be a job. Although for the first 10 years or so, it was more like a hobby. Uh, it was so small. But I also felt like um, it was something that I could do to help our generation in Maine collectively to create something for ourselves, but also to leave something for future generations. Mm-hmm. And it, it turned out to be a great success. The catalog remains um, a joy to read, and not only a catalog of of a list of trees to buy, but it's a kind of folk document in and of itself, which was a style that you established and you illustrated it for many years. Uh, and now Fedco has gone on and has become uh, an employee owned at this point. Yeah, I mean it's still a, it's still a true a true co-op. Everyone who works there and who buys who buys there too can, for a um, nominal amount, become a an owner. Another thing about that too, you mentioned the catalog. I'm not sure where I found this, where I got this this idea, but I decided early on that the catalog would be informational and educational and that I would trust the customer to want to educate themselves about the plants that they would consider buying. That meant that I had to know the plants really well, which meant that I went on a multiple decade educational adventure all over Maine and sometimes beyond to learn about the plants, either by growing them myself or visiting friends who had them, or visiting arboretums, and and then writing real information about them. Some of the the catalog descriptions are glowing, but that's not because of some tripe that <laughs> that I came up with. It's because they're really great plants. Mm-hmm. But more, I wanted to tell you where was this plant discovered, or or if it was bred, where it was bred, who were the breeders, so people really learned about the plants themselves, and that I felt like then the plants could speak for themselves, so to speak, and that, and that an informed, educated customer base would be something that would be to the benefit of Bedco and to the benefit of the customers, and I think it worked. That led you, that research led you on a, a walkabout. The lesson plan was almost tree by tree, You found trees, and you found them often derelict or surrounded by other growth. I mean, there were these sort of isolated icons and old growth representatives of a time 
somewhat forgotten and indiscoverable. I mean, we've all walked in the woods and all of a sudden found this, this ancient apple tree. The walkabout took you all over the state and you met an enormous number of people who became a kind of teacher's collective for you. Yes. So at first, Fedco was really, as I was saying, almost like a hobby. And I had to have other jobs at the same time to support me. After a few years, it got to the point where I only had one or two other jobs here and there. And then eventually, I had to give up everything else and just do Fedco. But as I was making that transition, a big thing happened. Uh, a number of scientists from Cornell and maybe some others from the USDA went to Kazakhstan. And that was the supposedly, and, and it's been proven now, it's true, the sort of primordial home of a lot of the genetics that make up the domestic apple. And of course, I heard about it. I really wanted to go, but I didn't have the money. I, didn't, I don't have a PhD in agriculture or horticulture. Nobody really knew who I was. There was no way that I was going to go. And so one day I was thinking to myself about all this, and, and maybe I was feeling a little sorry for myself. And I thought, well, wait a minute. They've got Kazakhstan covered. You know, the, like, the smartest plant people or many of the smartest plant people or apple people in the, in the world have it on their radar. They're going there. They're figuring it out. They're learning a lot, which they did. But what about Maine? You know, I'm meeting old-timers who uh, are my parents' age, uh, and my parents were born in the early, early 20th century, or even older. And they've even lost a lot of the knowledge. And now, this was like 30 years ago, I already knew more about many of the old trees and the varieties than the oldest people in town. And plus, I was starting to learn that many of these apples that I was coming across, these, his, I would call them historic varieties, whatever, heirlooms, you know, they originated in Maine, you know, from a seed and somebody discovered them and gave them a name and propagated them, so forth and so on. What about them? And as far as I could tell, no one was doing anything about them. They were being lost, like daily, yearly. And so I thought, well, maybe what I could do is I could see if I could track down and identify and preserve the historic apples of Maine. And it would be something that I could contribute. It's something that no one else was doing. If I found good stuff, I could propagate them, sell them through the Fedco catalog. Fedco could sort of subsidize my exploration. And I don't need any really any money to do this. I need gasoline to drive around. I don't have to convince anybody to take me to Europe or Kazakhstan because all I have to do is just get in my truck and go. And so I started to just, you know, when I could, especially in the fall, which which you know soon became my favorite time of year, I would just like put a few things, some lunch and an apple picking bucket and a few boxes and bags in my truck. And then I'd kind of like stab the map with my finger and head off and then knock on doors. And people thought what I was doing was really great. And I'd come to their house and next thing I know, 
they were taking me behind their barn to show me their old trees. Or in some cases, they'd say, park your truck over there. I'm going to take you on an adventure. And so a total stranger, I'd be in their truck or car, and we'd be driving off to some farm that their grandparents owned to show me the old apple trees. And uh, then, at a certain point, I, I had been fortunate to have some really wonderful mentors when I was young. And that may have been in part a function of having a father that was not around. But in any event, I had some really great mentors, but none of them were Apple people. And then at a certain point, um, you know, about 30, 30, 40 years ago, I, th I thought, you know, I need to find the old timers in Maine that really know a lot about this before they die and then, and then go meet them and like become their student, you know? And so, uh, you know, you hear about people. And so uh, I tracked down primarily uh, three, and it turned out they're all men, two of whom I sought out in, and one of them lived in Somerset County and the other in Kennebec County. And, uh, and they were both, you know, 50 years older than me or whatever. And then one other friends introduced me to who lived in Fort Kent in Arista County. And all three of them just took me under their wings, taught me many varieties, uh, just let me hang out with them, let me work for them for nothing. I'd just go and help them. Just spent huge, huge amounts of time generously giving themselves and their knowledge to me. If you are just joining us, this is Conversations from the Pointed Firs here on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM, streaming and archived at WERU.org, and available as podcast at pointedfirs.org. I'm your host, Peter Neal, and my guest today is John Bunker, author, orchardist, and apple historian. We are discussing the role of the apple as a natural asset of Maine and social icon. And there were others, too, that, that I met who have been great, who did a little bit here and there, or, 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 you know, many people who, like, knew a variety or, you know, shared this or that with, with me. But these three men in particular were just, they completely changed my life. And they did it just because I showed up and asked. It was more than knowledge, though, wasn't it? They, they were truly mentors. I mean, they were father yeah. figures. They were, yeah. they were friends. They were, they were folklorists. Yeah, and uh, the uh, generosity that they showed to me has been the, um, I hope, the model to which I aspire every day. You know, that, that I believe that the best way to uh, change the world is to is to spread it around freely, whatever it is that's been shared with us. I have the sense that if I did a scan of your brain, I would get a kind of GPS uh, representation, visualization of thousands of old trees all over the state of Maine that you had visited, taken sign, and documented and shared. Is that true? Yes, that is true. They're 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 in there. Some some of them, 
some of them are 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 closer to the surface and some of them are 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 deeper in another sort of pivotal event in this whole process happened at a pomological society meeting a main pomological society meeting and and the main pomological society which which started in 1873 uh, and you mentioned this in your introduction is now having its 150th anniversary and i used to go to the meetings i mean i still do occasionally but when i was young i went to the meetings because really there was no apple things going on at mafka yet and i didn't really have any mentors yet and i was longing for information and i found out about those meetings so i went and there was me and then all these men they were all i think pretty much all men who were um who were my parents age and me like sitting in the back trying to be invisible and having this like this like uh, emerging sort of like revelation about these incredible historic apples that i was discovering and then wanting to share about where share it with others and wanting to learn more about it and meanwhile the orchardist if the if the subject of heirlooms ever came up in these meetings which it rarely did but it did on this one occasion one of them said to the agreement of everyone else there get rid of the heirlooms they're awful they don't taste good they're no good there's a reason why we don't grow them anymore they're worthless you know like like they used to say about communists the only the only good heirloom is a dead heirloom <laughs> and uh, so i thought what am i doing i'm like obsessed with these old varieties but but they're bad they taste bad they taste weird you know and some of them clearly did taste weird to me but i thought but why would somebody select these farmers were brilliant that they picked all the best land and you know i mean they 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 provided for their families i mean the, these farmers of the past in maine were not dumb people so they weren't picking bad apples to name and propagate and everything so then i thought i had this aha moment and i thought i know what i'm going to do i'm going to learn how to make an apple pie and so i called my friend and said who who makes suzo chef and said teach me to make a passable crust of an apple pie. I don't want it to be fancy. I want it to be simple, but I want it to bring out all the flavors of the apples. So he taught me how to make a crust and I started making apple pies. When I'd find an apple and I'd say this is not a fresh eating apple, then I'd make it into a pie and then I'd go, now I get it. Right. Try eating a raw potato. These apples were never meant to be eaten fresh. they were meant to be made into molasses or pies or sauce or butter or cake or bread or cider or dried or you know whatever now we all work at home because of covid or whatever but they all worked at home back then on the farm or in the woods and so at noon they came home and they had they didn't have lunch they had dinner and they ate cooked apples Let's go. I want to just stick with the Pomological Society for a minute. 150 years old. So in 1873, the founders had a reason. What was the mission at the time? Maine um had been originally settled by Europeans as the Europeans came into Maine. 
Many of them, maybe even most of them, lived on simple, diversified farms, semi-self-sufficient farms. And the seeds and the livestock, although I'm not an expert in livestock, um, that they had with them were essentially unselected land races. So the breeds of animals were not yet a thing, or maybe they were a little bit, but again, that's not my expertise. And the apples that they brought with them were almost exclusively from seed. So they were very diverse and unpredictable and, you, and unique to that location because, the, because uh, an apple seed is a diploid, has half the genetics of mom and half the genetics of dad. And they, um, so you plant a Macintosh seed, you won't get a Macintosh tree. So the early orchards of Maine and all over Eastern US were these very diverse seedling orchards that were primarily used for cider, but also for cooking and for vinegar and for animal food and so forth. And the economies, because the roads were either non-existent or very rudimentary, interstate commerce was essentially non-existent and much commerce with towns you know, to get from Palermo to Augusta, which now takes us 30 minutes in the car, took all day long with an ox. So they were, they were self-sufficient. Well, as the uh, 18th century turned into the 19th century, for whatever reasons, and, and we can be, uh, you know, we, we can be cynical or, or whatever about the reasons, that, that's, that's somebody else's department, but for whatever reason, the roads got better the ships that went back and forth from Boston to, well, they were all probably really good right from the beginning. But, uh, and then further south, though not so much in Maine, they built canals. Then they built railroads. The railroads started to come in in the mid-19th century. And shortly after, by the time of, of roughly the, the Civil War, a little bit before the Civil War, there was enough of an infrastructure for there to be the potential for interstate and international commerce. And there was then a big debate uh, in Maine and probably in many other locations, farming locations, rural locations. Also, you have you know, the beginnings of the rivers being dammed up and industry, shoes, cotton, etc. And there was a debate. Should we now uh, enter into a period of commodity agriculture? where you have the dairy, the, you know, the potato farm, the apple orchard, etc., or should we be promoting the diversified farm? And it was a real debate that went on, and if you can find the literature of the day, which is sort of like, well, you know, the second half of the 19th century, it was not a done deal that we were going to move towards this commodity form of agriculture that we have today. But it was a debate, and it coincided with the Hatch Act, which was 1887, I think, or around then, and that was the land-grant colleges. There was this the, the formation of the Department of Agriculture, which happened in the early, I believe, the early 1860s, uh, maybe even still during the, during the Civil War. And so there was this collective decision made to the 
dismay and disagreement of some that the days of the diversified farm were going to get over. And it took them about another 50, 60 years to die almost completely. And it's still not dead. In fact, it's being revived now. But that process was the process whereby instead of every farm having an orchard, which was like 10 trees or 12 trees, or maybe a big farm orchard would be 50 trees, to the orchard as we know it today, where most commercial orchards have you know, 5,000 trees or, or whatever, and they may do a little, a few of this and a few of them. They have pumpkins or, you know, whatever. Some are, are somewhat diversified. But the idea was we as, or myself as a farmer of apples, I should be growing apples. I should be growing them in a more scientific way, to use that term. And I am going to need a educational support system to help me to do that. And that was the origin of the Pomological Society. Yeah, and so the, the Pomological Society originated, well, in, in 1873. It had a earlier incarnation about 10 years earlier, which was called the Maine Horticultural Society. That lasted a few years and then faded out, and the name changed. And the debate went on. You know, um, there were still, you know, in, in 50 years ago when I was first here, even in Palermo, you could still find people who were doing the small diversified farm. And the apples that I was discovering were the remnants of those like 12 tree orchards. One of my favorite talks I ever gave was one where, um, I don't remember what I talked about, but afterwards a young woman came up to me and said that her grandmother uh, had one of those 12 tree orchards or you know, whatever, maybe it was 14 trees, whatever. And each tree was a different variety of apple, and she would only use that apple from that tree for a very specific use, you know, and she knew them all intimately. She may not have even known the, the quote-unquote real name, but that was irrelevant. She knew the apples so intimately that she knew just what she was going to use for each of them. So it's clear, though, that the apple was not indigenous to Maine. It was, it's part of the colonial baggage. Yeah, it was brought over by Europeans. Uh, as far as we know, um, and again, I'm not by any means an expert in First Nation or native, native people and their agricultural practices, but I do know from what I've read that, um, that the native people of New England and other areas loved the apple and quickly began to make use of it as well. The apple as we know it, the domestic apple, only exists in nature as a feral creature, so to speak, as a natural fruit, by where it has escaped cultivation. So there is no place in the world where you can go and find these apples growing pre-discovery of humans. The, the apple that we have today the Honeycrisp or the Macintosh or the Northern Spy or whatever, is a, a genetic combination of several species from uh, Europe and Asia that happened in part through human selection and partly through uh, just through happenstance and then eventually began to be 
cultivated in earnest in Europe, and then and then seeds from those most popular varieties were then brought to what would eventually become Canada and the U.S. as early as the 16th century, and then eventually in a flood once Europeans really began to come here. Well, I have talked to people in the Basque country in Spain, for example, who, the Basque country, excuse me, who, um, you know, they had apples and apple seeds with them when they came over in the 16th century. Yes. So it was here early. Yes, it was here early, and, and it exploded into this really almost like a second sort of, I don't know exactly how I would say this, we call it sort of a genotype center in the world of apples. Because what happened was millions of seeds were planted and then thousands of selections were made, named, grafted, and passed around. So that by the mid-19th century, about the time of the Pomological Society of Maine, there were well over a thousand varieties just growing in Maine, and thousands uh, throughout North America. Well, as we collectively began to abandon the diversified farm and take up the, the commodity model of agriculture, that led to the demise of the diversity. And that was because it was decided by you know those powerful in the industry that we needed a very few varieties that would be recognized across a wide geographical area and could be grown in many locations. We could have picked a different model For one thing, we could have picked the small diversified farm model and we could have pushed that. We could have also picked the model of like cheeses in France, where you go to this town and everybody has this cheese and you go to that town, maybe it's 10 miles away, but they grow that cheese. But instead, we went for the sort of one size fits all, where it would all be recognizable. And so the varieties that were chosen And eventually, as Maine really wanted, you know, the Maine uh, over the next from 1873 to 19, you know, the first 60 years there up to around 1930, the big push was like the one variety that Maine would grow or New England. Of course, that became Macintosh, but there were several others that were being pushed as well. And there was nothing like secretive about it. They were clear. We don't want you to grow the apples that originated in Waldo County anymore, or Somerset County, or Rustic County. You know, we want we want to like eliminate the uh, the numbers, the diversity, and funnel it down to something that can go to the grocery store, can feed the people who are no longer working on the farm, but they are now pressing a lever in a cotton factory or a shoe shop, and they need to be able to go to their grocery store and buy apples. We want that model instead. So talk a little bit about the sort of the social traditions of the apple. I mean, there are uh, song, poets, narratives, folk stories uh, about the apple. Is that alive and well? 
Well, I, I read uh, something once, I can't remember who the author was, and it was about the demise of that period of diversity. And that uh, coincides, you know, there, there's a lot of, uh, you know, cider was a very important part of New England culture for generations. And the temperance movement movements of uh, the 19th century and 20th century, part of their, their sights were set on cider. And uh, that led to the cutting down of orchards and so forth and so on. But this writer, what he said was something like, as long as there's one apple tree left in New England, there will be cider. And I think what he meant was, more metaphorically, um, you're not going to kill this. Mm -hmm. You know, this is too important. The beauty of the cider, and actually the, 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 the best writing about that, maybe my favorite, is uh, Henry David Thoreau's article that he wrote for the Atlantic Magazine. Uh, it was the last article that was published before he died called Wild Apples. And he talks a lot about all this, and I won't describe it except that if your listeners want some really fun writing about, about wild apples and about the history of apples, you know, get this article. The apple is, is important for us historically in part because it is so perfect as it is with no additives. You can eat it fresh, you can dry it. You can grow the late varieties and store them all winter in your root cellar. You can make applesauce out of them until May or June or even July. And you might think you need to add sugar and spices and, you know, whatever, but you don't. And cider, you can make vinegar. If you are someone that drinks alcohol, you can make cider that requires nothing but apples. And the other preferred alcoholic drinks in uh, America were the ones that you couldn't just so easily make on the farm. And they required an infrastructure, whether it was a still or whether it was uh, barley and malt. And, you know, I'm not a beer maker, but, you know. But with the apple, anybody could grow the apples and they could have their own alcohol they didn't have to pay taxes to anybody for it. They didn't have to buy it at the store. And somehow, I think that along with whatever else did insider for so long, it was the inability for the marketplace to figure out how it was going to make a buck off the people that just had a barrel in their basement. But what about apple juice? Apple juice is a symbol of purity. It's, it's a symbol of health. It's, a, it's not alcoholic at all, theoretically. I mean, how did that come? Is that part of the commodification and the monetization of, of the product? Or did people enjoy the juice of the pure, unadulterated apple? In Europe, when you press an apple, uh, when, you, when you grind it up and press it, you get a liquid. In America, that liquid is called, was called cider until it was fermented. 
and fermentation is going to happen. If you don't do something to stop it, it's going to happen. It will happen naturally. Yeah. This is Conversations from the Pointed Furs, a monthly interview program with authors and artists who invoke the spirit of Maine, broadcast live the first Friday of every month here on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM, streaming and archived at WERU.org, and available as podcast at pointedfurs.org. I'm your host, Peter Neal, and my guest today is John Bunker, author, orchardist, and apple historian. So in North America, I don't know if this is true in Canada, but it probably is, they would call this, this product that was unfermented, they would call it cider. If you pasteurize it, that kills a certain bacteria and that forces it, that, that prevents it from fermenting. It'll just rot instead. And that they call in America apple juice. In Europe... Apple juice is, is the liquid that comes from the press before it has fermented. Once it's fermented, it's cider. Mm. It's not fermented cider. It's not hard cider. It's just cider. <laughs> so now in America, we're trying to wean ourselves away from calling it hard cider and just calling the fermented drink cider and the unfermented drink juice. Juice, whether it's um, sparkling like Martinelli's, Martinelli was making hard cider, fermented cider, until Prohibition in the 20th century Prohibition. And then rather than go bankrupt and lose all their business, they switched to creating this product that was unfermented but sparkling and sort of reminiscent of fermented cider and then made that popular and made quite a good business off that. The pasteurized drink that you can get at your grocery store, that is, uh, is probably also a function of the demise of the fermented cider uh, during Prohibition. Uh, you can, what I believe that uh, most farms did, you would press the cider, you would press the, the, the liquid, you know, put it in a barrel, put it in your basement, put an airlock on it uh, to prevent oxygen from being sucked in, and then start drinking it. And in November, it would be Juice. very sweet. Yeah, it would be <laughs> sweet, juicy. And then it would slowly ferment throughout the year right. until, until, and maybe some of it, if you were into it, you might reserve some and not remove anything from it and just allow it to ferment. But it becomes more fermented over time. But even at the end, which is when it's entirely dry, when all the natural sugar in the liquid has become alcohol, it's still only 6% or so. Right. So it's never, never particularly alcoholic. It's not a wine where your goal is to get the alcohol content up to, say, 12% or whatever. Let's talk about uh, the, the revival, the idea that part of what you're expressing in the understanding of the varieties, uh, the distribution, uh, the social history, is now part of a kind of an artisanal revival. You see it in the brewing industries, all these boutique breweries, that this is part of a kind of value shift uh, in the early 21st century, late 20th century, where there's a different kind of value and kind of dismissal of the, the commodification and the, 
the lack of uh, uh, diversity of the apple as a product. Yeah, when you have a when you have a commodification, a commodity agriculture, that is based on. At first, it was based on free labor, which was slavery, mm-hmm. and now it's based on cheap labor by having illegal people coming in from Central America or wherever, or poorly paid people in USers. So the commodity form of agriculture is based on cheap food, which is subsidized by either free labor or now cheap labor. So we don't really pay for our food. And that's, that's okay. That's the way we do it. And, and maybe that's good, maybe that's bad, but that's the way we do it. When I was first exploring the sort of economics of apples in Maine, this would be 40, 50 years ago, I would go to commercial orchards wherever I could. If I'm driving down the road, fruit exploring, looking for ancient trees, and I came across a commercial orchard, I'd stop because they were fun to visit, and I love visiting them, and I love getting to know the, you know, the orchardists and so forth. And I would always ask them what they were doing with their apples and so forth and so on. And back then, most of the apples that they couldn't, you know, most of the apples, they weren't even selling on the farm. They were selling to wholesalers. They were selling a few on the farm. There's very little retail going on on the farm. And the apples they couldn't sell, they sold to applesauce companies mm-hmm. or juice companies. And they sold them at essentially nothing. Mm-hmm. So they were the apple orchardists, the employees, the workers, the, the even the owners were essentially working for close to nothing to produce this, this commodity that had a value, but the value was to the wholesalers and the middlemen. It was not to the farmers. So I was thinking, you know, back then in my, you know, 20s, you know, trying to, trying to save the world. And I was thinking, well, well, this is insane. You know, these people, they're, they're extremely hardworking, and yet they can't make a living doing this thing. You know, and they're working, you know, in the fall, they're working 100 hours a week. What could be a product that could allow them to, to at least support themselves? And the only thing I could come up with was alcohol. And uh, I thought a lot about it. I made a lot of fermented cider in my 20s and early 30s. And then I said, no, it's not right. We should be making a product that is not a drug. You know, it should be, it should be possible to produce food and make a living doing it. You shouldn't have to have, you know, in most of these cases of these people I met, the wives weren't around. They were all working somewhere to support the farm, you know. And so that, that's wrong. And, um, and then eventually, and this would have been around the end of the 1990s, I heard about a few people who were saying, essentially, we're going to make alcohol. And, and really the, the sort of most important one was this uh, fellow named Steve Wood in New Hampshire, but another one was a fellow named Terry Maloney in northern Massachusetts, and there were others. But the two of them in particular, they decided that they were going to make a living doing a farm product. And you know what? The farm product was just going to have to be alcohol. And so they started to do that, and uh, they had an event which still exists in some form now, called Franklin County Cider Days in Franklin County, Massachusetts. Uh, More people got interested in what they were doing, amateurs and professionals. 
And one thing led to another. Uh, it caught on in other places, either because they had met Steve or Terry or they just read an article or, you know, whatever. And this whole thing, like, took off. In a way, uh, I mean, I'm extremely happy about it. I think it's great. It's still hard to make a living making fermented cider, but it's value added and it's value addedness, if you want to call it that, is enough so that it creates a, we'll call it a meaningful income. It may not be enough, but it's at least meaningful for a lot of people all over North America. There is, however, the non-alcoholic version. And so, for example, you here uh, at Super Chili Farm, in cooperation with growers around the state, have this apple CSA, where you're actually taking apple varieties and providing consumers with this original product, so to speak. That may not be a living, but it's a, it's a financial process, and it's approaching the value of the apple itself in a, with a different perspective. Yes. Well, I think that one thing that really has changed since the uh, 100th anniversary of the Pomological Society, which, which would be, you know, 50 years ago, is that orchardists, the younger generation of orchardists who maybe are now in their 70s or 60s or whatever, came to the realization that if you sell an apple on your farm, in your farm stand, you're going to make you know, I'll make this up, but it's at least twice as much per apple. Maybe it's even 10 times. You Maybe you make a nickel for that apple, that one apple, instead of, you know, a tenth of a penny. And again, I'm making up the numbers. But essentially, the gist of it is being a direct provider, a direct seller with your customers is worth the effort. And so you have the farm stand, and very few of them existed. They did exist when I was young, but there's a lot more. The farmer's market, which essentially when I was first here, it, they did not exist. And the CSA, and I'm not just talking about apples now, of course. Then came the realization, okay, if I'm gonna sell these apples from my farm stand, most of the people are familiar with Max and Cortland's and McCown's and now Honeycrisp. So we wanna grow a lot of those. But guess what? If we have a farm stand that has 40 varieties in it, or 20, it's more attractive. Even if they come in and still buy Max, they come in and they say, wow, look at, these are really big and these are really small and these are like, what? look at this color and you know, whatever. And then people came in and said, I wanna buy a pie apple. Well, in the 50s and 60s and and 70s, you didn't need to grow pie apples because the pies were made by Mott's was coming and buying for three cents a pound, and they were making it in a factory in Pennsylvania and freezing it and then shipping it back to Maine and putting it in your supermarket freezer compartment for you to buy this like tasteless apple pie. Well, now, you know, in conjunction with this food movement or whatever you want to call it, people wanted to make their own pie. So they come and they say, I want a pie apple. And we're like scratching our heads. Well, how about a Cortland? Well, it makes it okay pie. But if you look historically in Maine, there's two or three dozen apples that make phenomenal pies. 
So maybe in our commercial orchard, we should have like, you know, 10 trees that are, you don't have to have a thousand trees of them. You just have a few of this and a few of that. And, and let's have some black Oxfords that, that they were one of the many varieties that got the ax a hundred years ago. Let's have some historic apples from this county. And we'll have apples that are good for dried apples. And you know what? Somebody on our staff will be able to talk intelligently when the people come in and say, I want to do this. Try this. Yeah. But it is a kind of renaissance, isn't it? I mean, oh, it's yeah. The, it's the turning of the wheel. I mean, the fact is that we're, in, and we're doing this in so many different ways, which I personally, you and I may agree that that's exactly what ought to be happening, that we're returning to sort of the essential verities. We're coming back to self-reliance, subsistence. It's another function, oddly amplified, of back to the land, farm to table. If we had followed the advice of some people 150 years ago, all that would be gone. And once it's gone, it's gone. Mm. And so is it important that we have places like Geneva, New York, which has one of the most important apple collections in the world? You bet it is. And the main heritage orchard. And there's other, now there's coming up, there's a fantastic orchard in North Carolina of local varieties down there. And it's not just apples. It's wheat. It's potatoes. It's tomatoes. It's, we need to look at uh, the diversity that our ancestors clearly understood the value of. And we need to be maintaining that treasuring it, propagating it, sharing it. This is not to mention the fact that, you know, right now, I don't know the exact percentage, but I believe that almost two-thirds, if not more, of the citrus in Florida is now gone in the last few years because of this citrus disease. It's decimating Florida's citrus industry. Why? Well, in part, because there was no diversity right. there. The Main Heritage Orchard, which I, I know you <clears throat> single-handedly founded, welcome now by Mafka, but it's got 360 varieties planted and more to come. It's a gene bank, but it's more than just a, a biological bank. Um, it's a social history, and I'm, I'm in awe of it because that kind of prescience we needed at a time when we were well down the road in an, you know, an alternative path. And so my argument is that, in fact, that orchard, in a way, embodies the spirit of Maine, and it signifies, actually, um, dare I say it, saving the world. Well, one of the things that I realized as I got into uh, Maine apples, aside from the fact that I, I realized, oh gosh, I could study this, I could live 150 years and keep studying and I'd never learn at all, so there was plenty for me to do. But one of the things that, that I began to realize is that I could create a history of Maine just through the apples. And then I realized, oh gosh, you could create a history of you know, essentially Western civilization just through the apples. I also realized, and part of this was having the mentors that I had, but part of it was just the people whose doors I knocked on, is that actually this was like 10% about the apples and 90% about the people. 
some of the people were the people that I know now, in fact, you know, who have many of them have become close friends or, you know, or colleagues or many of them are now gone. And many of them I never met. I just learned about through my reading or through meeting people who told me about their great grandfather or grandmother or, you know, whatever. And it's been about like learning about about the place in which we live. And I have this, um, this sort of thought that I believe that where you live is your place. You could live there for 10 generations or 100 generations or a month or a year, but that's your place and you get to claim it as your place. And as your place, you have, you could call it an opportunity or a responsibility, whichever you want, they're really sort of the same thing, to learn about your place. And something like the old apple trees in Maine, which are everywhere and in every county and every town, they are a way of connecting you, whoever you are, with your place. Everybody should plant an apple tree. Yeah, well, that's, that's the future. It's the, the apple tree is like the baton in the relay race. And I think it's an apt metaphor because with the, with the apple tree, you cut the scion, that's the little snippet of branch that you use to graft. So you cut that from the old apple tree and then you graft it in the present moment and then you pass it along to the future. And often people say to me, well, you know, I don't want to plant an apple tree because, you know, I'm going to be dead and I bet I'll die before it fruits. You know, that's, you know, that's whatever. And then I, when I visit these old trees, um, which are some of my favorite beings, and I visit them, I think, you know what? Whoever grafted and planted that tree, they may have never eaten from that tree and we'll never know. But the mark of their hand is still with us. Yeah, it's, it's like, as I say, it was a gift. It was a gift to me. Thank you, John. My guest today has been John Bunker, author of Apples and the Art of Detection, Tracking Down, Identifying, and Preserving Rare Apples, available at your local independent bookstore or online at outonalimapples.com. I'm your host, Peter Neal. Thanks for listening.